If you would please uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We're having a slight detour from the Genesis series this morning. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 1 and uh, we'll uh, be reading this morning verses 1 through 8, but for our purposes we'll be focusing on verses 4 through 6. Revelation uh, chapter 1 and uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8, but focusing this morning on verses 4 through 6. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, And has released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Now, the text that is before us in verses 4 through 6 of Revelation chapter 1 is truly a, a marvelous passage. It is a dense golden nugget of theology in which is to be found the central facts of the Christian faith, even the central facts of the gospel itself. The doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, his incarnation, his death for our sins, his resurrection, Christ as prophet, priest, and king, his love for his people, his atonement for sins, the priesthood of the believer, the kingdom of God, all of these doctrines are here, either clearly expressed or else unmistakably implied in these three verses. This is a remarkable text. Let's consider it. And so this morning we'll first of all, work through the text and consider what is here, and then at the end we'll try to to draw in some some application. So John, as he's writing this, uh, he received this word of the Lord which constitutes the the book of Revelation while he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Jesus. That's seen in chapter 1, verse 9. This message was communicated or signified to John by this angel who was sent to him from the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus John writes this letter of the book of Revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor, those churches that Christ will each address specifically with a specific message in chapters 2 and 3. And thus the the book of Revelation is not only prophecy, it is also an epistle. It is a letter. And in accordance with the ancient epistolary custom, John gives his own name as the author, and he gives the, the name of his intended recipients, those seven churches which are in Asia, And even though those seven churches are addressed specifically in chapters 2 and 3, 
Nevertheless, the book as a whole is a letter to all of them. And far from being restricted to them, there is probably some symbolic significance here with regard to the number seven. John addressed this to seven churches, seven being the number of completeness, fullness. And those specific churches are mentioned in verse 11, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And mentioning himself as the author, his intended recipients, he extends to them this blessing of grace and peace. Of course, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know this is a typical greeting used in many New Testament epistles. And in our recent memory, we considered this a few weeks ago in the evening sermon opening uh, the book of Colossians. But for now, suffice it to say that grace is God's unmerited favor and goodwill toward us in Christ. It's the fountain and foundation of every blessing that we have as Christians. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. Suffice it to say that peace here bears the sense of of wholeness and well-being. As one preacher described it, this peace is great prosperity and happy success in all things. In a word, felicity and the abundance of every good thing. And so John pronounces this blessing of grace and peace upon the churches. Now, if you're familiar with chapters 2 and 3, as many of you are, you will know that there are some pretty serious problems in many of these churches. But nevertheless, John still recognizes them as churches, and he refers to himself down in verse 9 as their brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. And he pronounces this blessing of grace and peace upon them, even upon these churches which have a lot of problems. He gives them a blessing and not a curse. And notice here from whom this blessing comes. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. This blessing of grace and peace is from the blessed Holy Trinity, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. The Father is referred to as him who is and who was and who is to come. And this is used of the Father more than once. The living creatures, chapter 4, verse 8, say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. This speaks to us and reminds us of the eternality of God the Father, that in the words of Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And of course, since this attribute belongs to God as God, therefore it is equally applicable to the Holy Spirit and to the Son as well. And therefore, we find in that messianic prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Lord said, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth one for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, though this person would be born in Bethlehem, he is actually an eternal person. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This points to what we know as the eternal generation of the Son of God, that our Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal and only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. These are the words of the Nicene Creed. And... By implication, this is true of the Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit was there at the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 2, hovering over the waters at creation. 
Eternity is a divine attribute and therefore is applicable to all three persons of the Trinity. But here specifically, verse 4, this is applied to the Father, him who is and who was and who is to come. And next, John speaks of the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the Spirit as the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now that, in fact, this is the Holy Spirit should be clear enough from the fact that the Spirit is placed on par and in between God the Father and God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, are spoken of as the sources of this grace and peace which is pronounced as a blessing upon the churches. One writer helpfully noted that all the Scripture testifies that grace and peace comes to us sinners from God alone. No created source for grace and peace can be named. In other words, if grace and peace comes from the Spirit has to be the Holy Spirit, who is himself God, along with the Father and the Son. But still, we might ask, why does John speak this way? The seven spirits of God. Well, it is worth noting that in the book of Revelation, John never does use the designation Holy Spirit in reference to the third person of the Trinity. Now, certainly, he uses the designation Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, but he never uses Holy Spirit in uh, the book of Revelation. But he does speak more than once, of the seven spirits of God. He speaks of it here in verse 4. He speaks of it likewise, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 6. So why does he speak this way? Now, it is difficult uh, to be sure, but it does seem, again, that there's something likely symbolic with regard to the number seven in terms of representing the fullness of the spirit. And there may be, in fact, an allusion to uh, the Old Testament, to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah sees a lampstand with its seven lamps and seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps. And then beside it were, were two olive trees. And the angel there in Zechariah 4 interpreted that vision to Zechariah, Zechariah 4, verse 6, by saying that this signifies not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so there, there may be something in this, in this imagery there from Zechariah 4, the work of the spirit signified by this, by this lampstand and these seven branches of the lampstand and the seven spouts on the lampstand to which John was, was pointing back when he refers to the spirit as the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then John speaks... Of Jesus Christ. And notice, notice specifically how he describes Christ. He describes Christ in three ways. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now let's, let's think about those, those three attributes. First, he is the faithful witness. Christ is the one who has revealed the Father to us. Think of John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Christ is the faithful witness. He has testified to us about the Father. He has also testified to us about himself. Jesus put it this way in John 8, 14. Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Christ is the prophet like Moses 
who was to come into the world. He is the one whom in these last days, through whom in these last days, God has spoken to us, as you find in Hebrews 1 verse 2. Or in the words of 1 Timothy 6.13, he is the one who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He's the faithful witness who has shown us the Father. He has shown us the way to the Father because he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. John also speaks of Christ here as the firstborn of the dead. Now, when you and I use the expression firstborn in regard to our children who were born to us, the meaning is, is clear and easy. And so if I were to say my older brother is the firstborn son of my father, you would rightly understand that I'm saying that my older brother is the first son or the first child born to my father. And so he is. But when we see the term used in Scripture, it is not always used in such a uh, a straightforward fashion as this. The word can be used in a strictly literal sense, meaning the first child born born to a person, usually coming with special privileges, can also be used figuratively, as in Job 18.13, where Bildad was speaking of the firstborn of death, devouring the limbs of the wicked. Likewise, the Lord's command to Moses in Exodus 4.22 was that he go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The firstborn in that sense is in reference to the one who has the pride of place, the first position, one who is the preeminent one. And it is in that sense of the preeminent one that we find it in that messianic psalm, Psalm 89, which we read in our call to worship this morning, where the Lord says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so while there is a sense in which Israel was the firstborn, and even in which King David was the firstborn. They were only preeminent to a certain degree. But on the contrary, our Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent in every regard. Just as we read this morning in our unison reading from Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God. By him, all things were created. He's before all things. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he will come to have the first place in everything. And having the first place in everything, he has also the first place of those who are raised from the dead. He is here the firstborn of the dead. He is the first of those who were raised from the dead, never to die again. Now certainly we read in the Old Testament and in the ministry of Jesus about people who were dead and were brought back to life. We read of that even in the ministry of the apostles. They were dead and were brought back to life. But all of those who were raised by the Old Testament prophets or who were raised during the earthly ministry of Jesus or who were raised by the apostles, all of them eventually died again. They died and their souls were separated from their body and will remain so until the general resurrection on the last day. But Jesus is the first of those who was raised with a glorified body, never to die again. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he is the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Or as Jesus says later here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so Jesus is the, the firstborn of the dead in the sense that he is the first of those who are raised 
to a glorious resurrection, never to die again. And more than simply that, he is the preeminent one of all of those who will ever be raised from the dead because he alone is himself the resurrection and the life. He alone was able to raise himself from the dead and did raise himself from the dead. Jesus alone has the power of an indestructible life. And thus Paul speaks of him in Romans chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 by saying that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. And thirdly, John speaks of Christ as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now that phrase speaks for itself. It speaks of the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is in control of all that happens here on earth. Now, certainly the kings of the earth think that they are in control, but they're not. Solomon tells us that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And the risen Jesus, Matthew 28, says, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. It's all his. Let the nations rage all they want. Let the kings of the earth scheme all they like. Let the kings of tech and the makers of smart gadgets and artificial intelligence scheme all they like. As hard as they try, they are not in charge, and they never will be. Jesus is in charge. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth do only what he permits. Even when Caesar was dragging Christians into the arena to be torn to pieces by wild beasts, Jesus was king and ruler of the kings of the earth. Even in the bloody days of massacres and martyrdoms of the Reformation, Jesus was the ruler of the kings of the earth. And even now, when our brothers and sisters around the world are persecuted and killed, either at the hands of legal authorities who are actively doing it or who are turning a blind eye to those who are doing it, Jesus is still ruler of the kings of the earth. These words reminded the early Christians and us too that the power structures and systems of this world are not ultimate. The kings of the earth do indeed wield great power on earth, but they're not ultimate. David says in Psalm 9, 19 and 20, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Now, the nations of the world may not have realized this quite yet, but they will. They will know that they are but men because Jesus is ruler of the kings of the earth. And after having spoken to us in these terms of the, the person of Jesus Christ in these three ways, John then bursts forth in words of doxology, giving glory to Jesus. He gives glory to Christ, and notice why. He gives glory to Christ on account of his work for us. He says, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So John glorifies Christ on account of what Christ has done for us. And what is it then that Christ has done for us? He's loved us. How has he loved us? He has died for us. And in doing that, he has 
released us from our sins by his blood. Now that very language there of being released from our sins indicates that our sins are not simply actions, whether random actions or habitual actions. Our sins, rather, are controlling tyrants, which dominate men and women and drag them to hell. And therefore, Jesus says in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Or as Paul says in Romans 6, 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And what this means then is that apart from Christ, sin is our master and we obey its desires. But then in his great love for us, Christ releases his people from our sins by his blood, which is to say by his death on the cross, by which he made atonement for our sins, and by his resurrection through which he brings to us his imputed righteousness. Jesus brings us out of that bondage and into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And Jesus himself says in John 8:36 that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So Jesus sets us free from the tyranny and the dominion of sin. And though now sometimes our indwelling sin does rear its ugly head, yet it does so as a defeated foe and not, as it were, as a rightful master in our life. We're released from its power, from its dominion, but not completely from its presence. And not only are we released from our sins by his blood, but John tells us that he, Christ, has made us to be a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. And so there is in our redemption an aspect of kingdom and an aspect of priesthood. And this is the way it has historically been for the people of God. And therefore, the Lord told Israel of old at Sinai, Exodus 19.6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Apostle Peter picks up on that language, 1 Peter 2.9, and says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have been, in the words of Colossians chapter 1 then, rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so we're brought into the kingdom of Christ, brought out from the tyranny of sin and Satan, brought into the kingdom of Christ, made to be a kingdom. Christ now reigns as ruler of the kings of the earth and all who are his will reign with him as well. Those 24 elders say it later in Revelation 5.10, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. We are made to be a kingdom, a kingdom in which Jesus reigns supreme and we reign with him. We are also made to be priests. We have been brought into a priesthood in which Jesus is the great high priest, the one mediator between God and man. But now because of Jesus' mediation, all who are in him are now priests as well. Christ has made all believers to be priests to his God and Father. Now, certainly in being a priest, we need to be clear that we have nothing to contribute in regard to making atonement for sins. We're not that kind of a priest. But we are priests in other ways. How so? We're priests in that we make intercession. We make intercession both for ourselves and for others. We, in doing so, have access to the presence of God. 
course, in the Old Testament time, it was only the priests who were able to enter into the holy place and to minister and to serve in the tabernacle and later in the temple. But now we find in Hebrews 10.19 and following that since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. So through Jesus, our great high priest, we have the privilege of entering into the presence of God as priests. We intercede. We offer up ourselves as living sacrifices which are holy and acceptable to God. We bring the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. We do good and share, knowing that with such sacrifices God is pleased, as we find in Hebrews 13. And so our Lord Jesus has taken us from the kingdom and service of Satan and brought us into his kingdom and has now made us such that we serve God as priests. Now, if we begin to understand the full weight and the content of what John is communicating here, we might very well understand why he continues by saying, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory be to Jesus because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. Now, as we, as we turn to some application, certainly... Much could be said about these verses. There's wonderful doctrine here. The essentials of the Christian faith, at least many of them, are found here. But what we need to do is to understand that these truths are not simply theoretical. These truths are of practical relevance and importance. These were of practical relevance and importance to the churches of Asia Minor when they were suffering persecution or forsaking their first love or settling down into lukewarmness or tolerating false teaching or committing acts of immorality. And these doctrines are also of practical relevance and importance to us. Here we are in our own time and place, surrounded with comforts and gadgets and distractions, tempted in various ways to mean tempers or angry words and pride and greed and lust and self-absorption and apathy. The list could go on and on. The text before us is a practical remedy for the ills which beset these ancient churches and which beset us as well. And this text is a practical remedy because it reminds us of first principles, of who Jesus is and what he has done. And in reminding us of who Jesus is and what he has done, it reminds us then of who we are in Christ and therefore reminds us of how we must live. We're reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done. That reminds us who we are in Christ, and exhorts us as to how we must live. And so let's, let's think about this. Why is it important to remember who Jesus is? Why is it important that these truths are laid out before these Christians? They've already professed faith in Christ. Theoretically speaking, they should have known these things. Why is it important to remember who Jesus is? Why would Paul say to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my, cos- according to my gospel. 2 Timothy 2.8. It's important that we remember Jesus. Again, that we go back to first principles. In all things, it's helpful for us to remember who Christ is. Because when we're facing sin, 
burdened by temptation, burdened by hardships of circumstances, burdened by mistreatment, burdened by neglect of those who should be caring for us. It's helpful to remember who Christ is and what he has done because Christ has already gone through bad things on, for our benefit. Christ has suffered and conquered for us. Christ is the faithful witness who came and lived in a fallen and sinful world. And he did it faithfully. In so doing, he teaches us how to live. And because he has done so, he also can sympathize with us as we go through it. Jesus has been there. Are you facing uncomfortable circumstances? Are you facing persecution because of your testimony to the truth? Christ has already been there. He knows what it is to be ridiculed because of testimony to the truth. He knows what it is to suffer in the flesh to the point of death. Are you facing temptation? Christ has faced that as well. He was tempted by Satan himself, was tempted in all things as we are, and yet was without sin. And because Christ himself suffered when he was tempted, this is good news for us because he is able to help those who are tempted. He is the faithful witness. He answered the lies of Satan with the truth of God's word. And by Christ's suffering and death and glorious resurrection, Christ has become the firstborn of the dead. He's provided atonement for us, for all of our failures. This means forgiveness for all of the times when we did not live faithfully as he did. He is the firstborn of the dead, which means that he's conquered death and conquered it not only for himself, but also for all who are his. As Jesus said to Martha in John 11, the one who lives and believes in him will never die. For all of us who are in Christ, death has lost its sting. It's an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy. It's not to be feared. Jesus has dominion over the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth have no hold on Christ. And though they don't know it, they're actually in the hands of Jesus Christ. And because of this, as we walk through the world, this means that we have no cause for fear that can come to us from suffering or from death or uh, just being simply afraid of the rulers of this world. Though they set themselves against Christ and against us as his servants, Christ is supreme over them. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And one day, all of Christ's enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And this means, as Jesus told his disciples in the gospel, that we must not fear those who can take away our lives, but after that can do nothing more to us. We fear God. We fear God alone. And so we remember who Christ is. We remember who we are in him, that we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us and given himself for us. And as conquerors and those who are victorious in Christ, we should live that way. Not that we're proud in and of ourselves or haughty, but we should conduct ourselves with confidence, knowing the certainty of the gospel and the certainty of its application to us as those who belong to Christ. Again, we should fear God and no one else on earth. And we should remember that being released from our sins by his blood means that we should live like we are released from our sins by his blood. 
As Paul would say it in Romans 6, 11 and following, we're to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God through Christ Jesus and that we are not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies so that we obey its lusts. If we were letting it reign, that means we're under its tyranny and its dominion. We're not to do that. Instead, we are to present our bodies and ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. We're to remember that sin shall not be master over us, for, for we are not under the law but under grace. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, this means that sin is not your master. And therefore you'd better not be living as if it were your master. Christ is your master. And this means that if you're a Christian and you're confronted with the temptation to sin, then it is possible for you to avoid it. You don't have to stumble into it. God has promised to provide the way out so that you can stand up under temptation. Non-believers are different from you. Non-believers are under the dominion of sin. Their relationship to sin is different from yours if you are in Christ. By the grace of God and the strength of the Holy Spirit, make sure that you go forth and live as one who is under the lordship of Christ and not under the dominion of sin. And this fact that Christ has released us from our sins also means that we don't need to be burdened by the weight of our past sins any longer. Those sins have been dealt with. Christ has released you from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, and from the guilt of sin. No matter what you were or what you have done in the past, if you are a Christian, you are no longer bound by the past. Now, there may still be scars. I understand that. There may still be ongoing consequences here in this world because of sin. We understand that. But at the bar of God's justice, you are cleared and counted righteous by the merits of Jesus Christ. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. The past is over and done with. What matters now is that you walk forward in faith and bring forth the fruits of repentance. We can say with John Newton of old who said, I am not what I ought to be, I'm not what I want to be, not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Jesus has not only released us from our sins and then kind of turned us out to roam free on our own, rather he's, he's gathered us to himself. He's made us to be a kingdom. We're brought into this kingdom of God as citizens. But even as more than that, we are those who look forward to sharing the inheritance as joint heirs with Christ. We have the deposit of the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance, as Paul speaks in Ephesians 1.13. We look forward to reigning with Christ forever. And Christ has made us priests as well, which means that we must be busy in rendering this service as priests to God, offering those spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God in Christ Jesus as Peter speaks in 1 Peter 2.5, which is to say that we do good, we share, we bring forth the sacrifice of praise, we present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Now, I hope you can, can see the progression. We remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And then we remember who we are now because we are in Jesus. And then we live accordingly. As it is often said, the indicative is the basis for the imperative. And what that means is simply what is true forms the basis for what we must do. What is true forms the basis for what we must do.
Now these verses here, Revelation 1, 4 through 6, are full of indicative about who Jesus is and therefore full of indicatives about who we are in him. And therefore these verses are full of what we might call implicit imperatives, reminding us how we must walk in this world for Jesus' sake. Now it may be that you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I realize that most of, most of my time this morning I've been speaking to those who, who are Christians, who are in Christ. But it may be that you're here and you're not a Christian, that you've never actually placed your trust in Jesus and that you've never come to him for the forgiveness of your sins and turned away from your sin so as to follow God. Now, if that is an accurate description of you, I want you to, to hear me out just, just briefly. If you've never yet trusted in Jesus, then that means that all of these good things that Jesus has accomplished for his people that we've been talking about here this morning, all of these good things, strictly speaking, do not apply to you. They don't apply to you. If you've never turned to Jesus, he has not released you from your sins. You're still in your sins, still guilty and still condemned before God. If you've never turned to Jesus, then his resurrection from the dead and his victory over Satan provides you no lasting benefit. You'll be raised from the dead only to suffer eternal condemnation in the lake of fire for your rebellion against God. You're outside the kingdom of Christ. You're still under the tyranny of sin and Satan. You have no access to the presence of God as a priest because you have not come to God through his Son, who is the one mediator between God and man. These benefits of Christ are not yours if you do not come to him. And so if that describes your condition this morning, I want to invite you to come to Christ to turn from your sins, to call upon his name, to come to him. Look at yourself. Consider your life. Consider your sinfulness in the sight of a holy God. And consider Jesus Christ, whom we've been considering so much this morning here from Revelation chapter 1. Consider Christ who can bring you to God. Consider Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. All who come to him will come to the Father. And so come to Christ. Receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that is freely offered to you in his name. I want you to know that as the gospel is preached, this Jesus Christ invites you, you, whoever you are, invites you to come to him. He commands you to come to him. So come and look and live. And may we say with John, glory and dominion be to Christ. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for, for who Jesus is, for what he has accomplished for us by the great redemption which he has worked on our behalf. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would live accordingly, that we would live in light of these glorious gospel truths, that we would willingly offer ourselves to Christ in the day of his power, and that day is now, that we would serve him with joy and with faithfulness. We ask your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen.